Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm Tina Nazarian. Imagine you're an elementary school student. Your teacher has told your class to watch several streaming videos for a class project. You might want to watch some of those videos at home, but your family doesn't have high-speed internet. That's just one way technology and education can fail to serve some students. It's not necessarily because the teachers or the people making EdTech tools have bad intentions, says Mimi Ito, a cultural anthropologist at UC Irvine who studies how young people use technology. She argues that understanding another person's situation is just tough if you don't share that experience. I sat down with Ito at the Intentional Play Summit last month, and she shared her thoughts on equity in EdTech, creativity, and how kids' relationship to technology has changed over the years. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge webinar, How Social-Emotional Learning Really Affects Students. On October 30th, join EdSurge for a panel discussion on how SEL affects students inside and outside the classroom. Register now at bit.ly slash real SEL. I'm here today with Mimi Ito. Mimi is a cultural anthropologist who studies young people's use of technology and their relationship to media. Mimi, thank you for being here with me today. My pleasure. Uh, So Mimi, I wanted to start off by asking you how you think kids' relationship to technology has changed, if at all, over the years you've been studying it. And if you think it has changed, in what ways do you think it's changed? Wow, that's a really good question uh, and a hard question because I've been at this much too long. So, uh, you know, I first started studying kids and technology now about 20 years ago, uh, and things certainly have changed. I mean, the big uh, picture is that uh, technology, uh, well, digital technology specifically, has infiltrated just more and more aspects of uh, not just children's lives, but Uh, all of our lives, and it's also been uh, moving steadily younger. So I think uh, initially a lot of the new technology was sort of more about grown-ups and work, and I have this memory when I was in graduate school in the late 90s and interning at Xerox Park, and I was really interested in uh, what was, you know, really the emerging internet at that point, and uh, how young people were going to engage with it, and uh, gaming in particular, which was network gaming, which was just emerging. And I was talking with one of the engineers uh, who was uh, doing some of these early online uh, kinds of uh, systems for people to interact, and he just could not imagine that this technology could be used for play and entertainment. Uh, and so we've seen you know, that shift from the work, sort of academic uses, uh, eventually to uh, entertainment and teens taking up these technologies. And I think the big change now is that we're seeing even the youngest little <laughs> babies playing with technology uh, through uh, touch interfaces. So I think just the spread from sort of serious workplace to play and social and eventually to early development has been the biggest shift. And what was your own experience uh, with technology as you were growing up? Yeah, so I had uh, the interesting uh, advantage of having an older brother who was really into technology, and he's actually 
you know, part of our world as well. Uh, he uh, was an early internet entrepreneur and is now the director of the Media Lab, but he just insisted on having the latest, starting with the Apple II, and I remember connecting to the internet with a, a head, you know, a telephone handset coupled modem, uh, you know, doing a lot of early computer networking, not necessarily because I was interested uh, or I drove it myself, but because uh, I had a family context. And that has continued to be the case, uh, you know, even uh, after uh, I entered graduate school, uh, I ended up uh, doing uh, graduate studies at Stanford when uh, virtual reality was taking off, and I ended up uh, having a partner who was one of the original designers of the first generation of virtual reality. So I've always been that person who's kind of the curious outsider, uh, but very intimately connected with emerging technology. So I've often taken this function of being a sympathetic but uh, somewhat critical observer of emerging technology trends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know more about those critical observations you've made about technology. I think uh, as an anthropologist, you know, a lot of it is just reminding uh, people who make the technology that uh, not everybody is like them because the technology designers usually come from a narrower demographic than the people who end up using the technology. Uh, and also uh, just bringing a social scientific and humanistic perspective to technology design. Uh, within educational technology, this becomes even more important because uh, technology makers are not only serving ideally a diverse uh, student population that uh, and serving these uh, diverse students in equitable ways, but you know, often trying to um, span the generational divide, you know, of course we were all children and teens at one point in our lives, but it's really easy to, uh, for the oppressed to become the oppressor, <laughs> you know, age-based uh, assumptions and differences are one of the most taken-for-granted forms of power dynamics in our culture, and especially when uh, you look at teens, which is most of what I've been studying, uh, you know, teens don't you know, they're at the phase of their life where they see adults as, um, you know, oppressive influences, uh, trying to control their lives more than they want to. Uh, schools are not necessarily places where uh, young people feel a lot of ownership and autonomy. So in a lot of ways, even though I study things that are non-traditional, I do take the traditional stance of an anthropologist in translating uh, the perspectives and culture and interests of folks that are marginalized in society uh, in ways that people uh, who have more power and influence can understand. Yeah, and you've written about how technology oftentimes sets out to serve a certain group of people, but it doesn't always meet that initial goal it had in mind because of those uh, cultural differences, societal differences. Uh, you touched on that a little bit, but can you expand a little bit more about like what you think those differences are and um, what makers of these technologies should have in mind? Yeah, um, a lot of what we see, at least in educational technology, is that most people are working in educational technology with really good intentions and uh, trying to 
uh, not only offer valuable educational experiences, but also equitable ones. And uh, so it's usually the problem is not so much people's intentions, but the fact that, you know, you just can't understand necessarily another person's point of view without having gone through those same experiences. So, uh, you know, just a simple example, like uh, educational technologies that rely on streaming video, for example, seem like a really good idea. It's something that makes uh, new kinds of learning resources available more widely, but has the unintended and unfortunate consequence of marginalizing students who don't have access to streaming video. Uh, And, you know, sometimes... It's really just, it's, it's not even that people forget, but they never, you don't know unless those voices are at the table at the point of design, uh, sort of the specific needs of specific subgroups if you're sort of de- uh, designing for the common denominator. So we see that a lot with educational technology. Uh, you know, the other thing that we see in both educational technology and more traditional consumer technology is that users will often do unexpected things with something that was designed for another purpose. So one of my favorite examples is when uh, teenage girls in Tokyo in the early 90s started repurposing pagers to become text message devices. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was actually the origin of text messaging, is mm-hmm. that uh, the Japanese mobile carriers saw that and then specifically designed the first mobile SMS system based on the unintended uses that Japanese teens put the technology to. Um, So you've called attention to the digital divide um, and other barriers that keep some students from equal participation. What kind of divides, technological or otherwise, do you see for young people today? Mm -hmm. I think the big uh, gap that I'm concerned about is that uh, there's not only a gap in terms of access to what we think of as the formal educational system, which is uh, still a problem, you know, but somewhat better understood than the gap in informal education. And, uh, you know, when you look particularly at sort of fast-paced new creative areas like, uh, you know, coding, technology, digital arts, uh, innovation, then so much of that learning now is happening through more informal, peer-based, community-based kinds of contexts. And actually, the formal system, even if it was playing an equalizing function, cannot fully give young people the opportunities to succeed in some of these newer areas. And in fact, it's the informal networks through um, communities, peer groups, families, and so on, is where, you know, coders and techies and Hollywood people, that's how you learn and get opportunities. And I think uh, educators of all stripes, and including educational technology makers, uh, tend not to focus on those informal dimensions as much. And that's where I think the growing equity gaps are really um, becoming much more acute. Is there like a particular um, example that really sticks out to you that you've studied that, um, you know, that goes to 
to that point. So I'll give an example from some research that Craig Watkins, one of my colleagues, did where he studied uh, programs uh, that were in the Austin area that were really responding to the growing creative and innovation economy in that region and were offering uh, high school students uh, in Austin and lower income schools opportunities to learn digital production and uh, other kinds of high tech skills. And the uh, young people were given the opportunities to learn these skills. They got really good at it. But as soon as they left high school, unlike their more privileged privileged peers because they didn't have any social capital in those sectors. All the people they knew worked in retail or completely different sectors. Even these highly skilled kids had no pathway to opportunity in in the creative and tech class. So that's just an example where it's not enough to give people, uh, young people, content. It's not enough for them to have skills if they don't have the social capital, the social relationships, the connections across uh, different organizational contexts, then they have nowhere to go. And in fact, it's even more tragic when you think that you have developed these young people to a certain point, and yet the pathway to actual opportunity isn't available to them. Do you think there are any solutions to that divide you mentioned? Yeah, so a lot of our um, work in you know, the connected learning community has really focused on building supports that connect the formal and informal sector, uh, specifically relationships like mentoring, connections to affinity groups, uh, having educational programs not only think about the formal pathway and developing skills and knowledge in young people, but understanding how to broker connections to other organizations in the community to build relationships that are um, longer in duration, more personal and resilient than simply uh, what you would um, acquire in a class, for example. So uh, this can take the form of participating in informal community-based groups. Uh, One of my colleagues, Jean Rhodes, has developed a program um, called Youth Initiated Mentoring, which is really just... uh, giving young people uh, in their freshman year of college the skills to recruit their own mentors. Like, how do you write an email? How do you reach out to somebody who, uh, you know, may be able to help you in an area that you're trying to uh, break into? And these kind of more social uh, connection-building skills combined with programs understanding how to connect to a wider set of resources and opportunities. Uh, Those are the kinds of things that we really encourage our program partners to develop as much as the specific skills-based stuff. So it's kind of like that teach a man to fish saying? Exactly. (laughs) Right. So yeah, my colleague Jean Rhodes talks about uh, who specializes on, uh, you know, mentoring and is focused more and more on what we call affinity-based mentoring. So mentoring around particular, you know, interest areas or sectors. Uh, she talks about how we have to both stock the pond, so we have to train more people to be mentors, uh, and then we also have to uh, teach kids how to fish. Switching gears a little bit, uh, I was recently talking to Corey Doctorow and your name came up. Uh, He said you're the one to ask about creativity. So my question for you is, how do you think technology influences kids' creativity? Wow, that's a really big question. Uh, You know, I think there's a lot of different ways. I mean, 
Uh, it's been interesting. Uh, you know, some of my field studies have focused on fan culture, for example, and I've always been interested in how uh, popular culture can provide uh, kind of what Henry Jenkins calls a content world or just material for kids to be creative and imagine their own uh, uh, you know, forms of self-expression in new ways. And we found that with the advent of, you know, digital tools that enabled kids to not only access digital content, but tools to remix. And this is the kind of thing that Corey is interested in. It really resulted in an explosion of new forms of creativity, which were sort of more seamless with what everyday people do like you don't have to be this artist that has this singular vision and thunderbolt of inspiration but you know what we do in our everyday lives is we reference popular culture we quote things in our conversations um, you know we mimic actors we know and then there's sort of an easy step from that then to create a video that remixes, you know, different clips into a new form of expression or to create a meme that juxtaposes a picture with new kinds of text and recontextualizes it. And I think what digital culture has done is to create more of a spectrum between everyday communication and what we think of as like big C creativity. There's much more little C creativity that looks pretty good too. Like these video remixes or the fan art, you know, they all, they're um, lovely and emotionally evocative and very pleasurable to engage with, but they really require, um, you know, less uh, kind of investment and training than you would think of from the kind of traditional creative activities that young people were asked to do. So I think in that sense, these tools have uh, expanded just the forms of self-expression that young people have access to in ways that are really um, kind of interesting and fun. And you mentioned that, you know, traditional ways young people have been asked to be creative. What, what are a few examples of that? Yeah. So I think that, you know, even when you, uh, Think about the traditional creative writing class, for example. You know, it's really, uh, you know, it, it took a certain genre and form where it was, it's supposed to be original work. Uh, uh, and, you know, certain kids really take to that. But today, with the advent of digital publishing and the growth of remix culture, you see things like fan fiction, for example, which is about taking characters that somebody else has con has conceptualized and then writing a story around them um, or something that is even more accessible like role-playing boards where you know we did a study of um, fans of professional wrestling who get together and they each play the role of a different wrestler and they <laughs> write really quick interactive stories in real time on an online bulletin board. So suddenly there's this whole spectrum from like just interactive fiction writing, fan fiction writing, which is almost like a conversation you're having mm -hmm. with a friend to fan fiction, which is a little bit more deliberative, but still remixing or appropriating stories and characters that somebody else has imagined to uh, what you might call is truly original content. 
And, uh, you know, I think that last category is what we've historically kind of thought of as creative writing. And while we're on the topic of schools, how do you think schools' relationship to technology has changed over the years? Uh, (laughs) I think the technology that schools are using has obviously changed. More and more schools have some form of digital and interactive technology. Uh, but the nature of that relationship maybe hasn't changed that much. Uh, so it's very interesting. You know, one of my colleagues, Jim G, says that America has the best schools in the world and the worst schools in the world. And one of the characteristics of the American school system is the tremendous diversity. And often schools reflect the demographics of the kids they're serving. So I think what we're seeing is that there's always been a minority of schools that use technology in very student-centered and progressive ways, and those schools are still doing exactly that same thing with the new crop of technology. Uh, But then, you know, back, you know, even from the Apple II days or uh, educational video, we've always seen that the majority of schools tend to domesticate technology to the traditional kind of... um, direct instruction modes that are prevalent in that school. And, you know, nobody actually, it's very hard to get our arms around what that spread is. But my suspicion is that, you know, that breakdown is still probably not too different from what it was, you know, two decades ago. Um, Mimi, is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, um, I think that The only thing I would add is that, you know, I've been talking a lot about a lot of the problems and challenges, but, uh, you know, I do think that when I spend time engaging with young people uh, themselves and how they are uh, using, uh, embracing new technology in communities of interest uh, uh, that are supported through these uh, new online networks that... There is just a tremendous kind of energy and capacity that young young people have developed because they've had access to certain tools for social connection and self-expression from a young age. Uh, But I see that a lot of that opportunity is still being squandered because our institutions of education, our adult frames of mind, we're not really good at harnessing that potential. So... Uh, I would hate to see that opportunity wasted. I think that's an interesting note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mimi. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. For more of our interviews about the future of education, please subscribe if you haven't already. And follow our coverage of the latest EdTech developments on our website. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.